Today's reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying of pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. <clears throat> then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Sunday, I began a new series that I titled uh, Living in God's Kingdom. And as I began that series, I started with the why question. And the why question is why this topic? And I, I began to answer that question with, by sharing some of my own story. In other words, my reason for exploring this topic with you is is personal. Uh, It's not an academic exercise. It is not simply a a case of uh, disseminating information to you. And there is no hidden agenda either. In fact, it's just the opposite. My reason for going into this topic with you is because it's deeply personal. And I want to share this with you in the hope that you in turn might, might find Jesus compelling. Find Jesus compelling. And that as a result of that, that you would entrust to him your life and your future. As I related last week, the importance of this topic was forged in an extended experience. Actually, it was the first 20 plus years here. An extended experience of disorientation, crushing darkness, isolation, and failure. And you can listen to the podcast from last week for more details because I narrated that last week. Looking back, it looks now to me as I look back to fit what the 16th century writer John of the Cross describes as a dark night of the soul. It's defined as an extended season in which God seems absent and when the brokenness of the world and a sense of darkness hems you in. One detail I didn't include last Sunday, in in the midst of getting pummeled with repeated, continuous dysfunction 
and attacks from within the church as well as spiritual oppression, I decided it was time to just kind of retreat and step back and get away from this. And so I took a, a few weeks off and I decided to go to Philadelphia to stay with a friend uh, from seminary. And it was there in Philadelphia that I knew that I could probably just rest, I could be silent, I could crash, and there wouldn't be any agenda on his part to try to fix me, and therefore I wouldn't have to be encountering that kind of thing. While there, we took a trip to Staten Island to go visit a friend of his, and then the three of us were planning to go to New York City to just tour, hang around the city, and have fun. I still have a photo uh, I ran across recently of the three of us standing in front of the World Trade Tower. And I can vividly recall going across the Verrazano Narrows Bridge into Manhattan, and just like it was yesterday, having this overwhelming sense that death would be a relief and a release from all the crushing weight of darkness and isolation and despair. The people that were driving the car, the person who was driving the car had no idea that it was going on, but it was so vivid to me. And I knew Jesus' words in John 10.10, where he says, I have come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. But that was not my experience. And it drove me to ask, is this all there is? Is this Christianity thing simply a way to hope for something after death? Or is there something more that's offered? And this led me to Jesus' words in John 12, 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, God's way is to bring life out of death. Not just with Jesus in the past, not just with me in the future in terms of my bodily resurrection after I die, but with us now in the present. But what does this death in the present look like? Well, it can take many forms, but in my case, it was about experiencing enough limitations to bring me to see the idolatrous ways I, tried to cons- I had tried to construct my identity instead of receiving it as a gift of grace from God in whose image I'm made. It was out of this experience of dying to the self that I had tried to construct all of my life that I found Jesus and I found life I found an awareness of the kingdom of God. And that's why I'm bringing this to you, is because this is deeply personal. This has come through the crucible of life. This is not academic. And so I posed the question last week, which I will do again today, and that is, what is the kingdom of God? And last week we saw that the kingdom of God was something to frame Jesus' ministry Jesus begins his ministry in Mark 1 with this announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God that is present. He says it's good news and it's present. In Matthew 
24, he ends his ministry by talking about the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1, during Jesus' 40-day resurrection appearances, Luke says that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God repeatedly during those 40 days. The kingdom of God was something that was central to who Jesus was and is and to his communication of what he was all about. So he talked about the kingdom of God repeatedly. Jesus didn't create the idea of the kingdom of God. It emerges from the Old Testament narrative. It comes from the flow of the Old Testament story. And again, I would refer you to, next, to last week where I developed that more fully. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't define the idea of the kingdom of God like a, like a dictionary definition. So if you go back and you look it up, there's not a dictionary definition. Instead, he tends to describe it. He says the kingdom of God is like a woman who bakes bread. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. He takes the world in which his listeners are living and he begins to try to attach their experience to what this kingdom is like because it's breaking in and he wants them to get it. And we'll be looking at more of this from the Gospels as we go along in this series. Like a priceless diamond, the kingdom of God has many facets to it. And we'll be looking at these descriptions in the weeks to come. But today I want to simply address two things with you. All right? Just two things. If the kingdom of God is like a diamond with many facets, then I want to turn the diamond just a little bit and look at yet another facet of the kingdom of God. In other words, I want to add another dimension to this question. What is the kingdom of God? And then the second thing that I want to do is I want to raise the question that I think that we will be encountering throughout this series, and it's this question. What do we expect? What do we expect? So to get another perspective on the kingdom of God, I want to direct your attention to the screen behind me where the Bible Project guys are going to help us make a connection between heaven and earth and the kingdom of God. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically in the form of cities coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation, and God's space and human space completely overlap once again. There's a whole seminary course in five minutes right there. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, isn't it? This guy's doing an amazing job. So there's other videos, uh, thematic ones, as well as the book ones that they do. That's for those of you who are new to Grace. Uh, we've been uh, reading through the Bible this year, and, and it's called The Bible Project. So if you want to go on your app right now and begin to download it, feel free to do that. Uh, they've got an app as well. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, based upon that video and they're reading the text of scripture, I think very well, uh, they're saying that there are little pockets where heaven and earth come together. It's where God's reality and our reality intersect. It's the moments when we see that God's will is, is done on earth. When Jesus told us to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's telling us to pray this reality, to pray that heaven and earth would come together in this life. 
and to anticipate that that is a possibility in this life in a thousand different ways. And we see examples of those moments in the life of Jesus. I'd like to ask you to open up your Bible just for a second to Matthew 11. It's page 816 and the blue one's underneath you. I want you to at least look at this text. Uh, I've been flying through a lot of texts, but in Matthew chapter 11... Verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, and this is about the Messiah, God's anointed one, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John is having his doubts in prison and he's wondering, is, is Jesus the one who's going to really bring in his kingdom? Because my guess is John is being in prison. He's think, thinking, it's not going well. It's not going the way I anticipated. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. And notice what he tells John's disciples to report back. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news Preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, in these examples of what Jesus is describing here, he's talking about heaven and earth coming together. This is the kingdom of God. And when heaven and earth come together, the blind see, the dead are raised, the lame walk. You see, that is not what God intended this world to be. And the reason why we know that is because in Revelation 21, verse 4, that Gene read to us this morning, it's talking about God's future. And in God's future, when, the, when there's the new heaven and new earth, in God's, new, in God's future, there will be no more of the things that Jesus talks about there. All that stuff that Jesus was doing was anticipating a future in which there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, no more suffering. So what Jesus is doing as he's walking along and he's doing this healing and he's restoring people is he is pulling from God's future and he's bringing that future into the present. I've said this multiple times, but I'll repeat myself. When Jesus does these deeds, they're called mighty deeds. We tend to call them miracles, and we tend to put them in some special category. But they're called mighty deeds. And Jesus does these mighty deeds not to prove that he is divine, that he is supernatural. But he does them to point to the future that is breaking in and will one day break in in all of its fullness. That is the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven because Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience and he he is careful to not offend them by speaking the divine name. Hence, he says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God, but it's the same thing. So what is going on here in Jesus' life and ministry as we read the Gospels and as we see what Jesus is doing, every time we see him restoring, forgiving sin, whatever he does, it's always with an eye towards the kingdom of God and telling people, look, it is present among you. It is present among you. And so it, is present among, it was present among these people in the first century in Jesus and in Jesus' mighty deeds. And then the Spirit is poured out and now... We are people who now represent the kingdom and we are called to bear bear witness to the presence of the kingdom that has been inaugurated in Jesus' coming. So we don't put a period and close 
this at the book of Acts and say, it's all done. Let's just wait for Jesus to come back and get us out of this hellhole. That is not a biblical view. That is not a person who is guided by reading, a, reading carefully the text of Scripture. What the text of Scripture tells us is that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated with Jesus and we are now people who are living in between what has begun and will one day be completed when God finally brings heaven and earth together in all of its fullness. Are we oriented now? So that leads to this question, it's the second of two things that I wanted to address, and that is, what do we expect? See, if God is moving history towards re- reuniting heaven and earth, and it's begun in Jesus, then what can we expect now? See how that works? What can we expect in this life? What can we expect in 2016? More personally, what, if anything, do you expect to be different in your life, in your relationships, in the world in which you live? I think this, for many people, is where where the elephant is in the room. I think this could be where the elephant in the room is potentially an obstacle for us. See, I think that we're being invited into a way of living where there's a potential for great joy. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, there's is a place where there's, is a reality in which there is a potential for great joy. But trust, or better entrustment, requires great vulnerability. I came across a piece written by Richard Beck. I've quoted from him before. And he interacts with Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. And I want to read to you his interaction with her, her book, Daring Greatly. It's a, it's, a, it's a little extended piece, but I think you should have no problem following it. Richard Beck writes, in her work on vulnerability, Brene has discovered, somewhat paradoxically, a connection between joy and our fear of loss. When we experience deep joy, we feel extraordinarily vulnerable. We fear that the joy will not last, that something tragic will happen that will rob us of happiness. Anyone who is a parent understands this. The birth of a child is a deep and profound joy, but the birth of a child also introduces into our lives a chronic fear of loss. I know that's true for me. Our joy is fragile and precarious, tainted by the prospect of death. In becoming a parent, I was never more joyful, but I was also never more afraid and cognizant of death. In Brown's research, she has asked people about when they have felt the most vulnerable and exposed to loss, and more often than not, what people have shared with her are experiences of great joy. According to Brown, these are the sorts of experiences in life that make us feel most vulnerable. Standing over my children while they are sleeping, acknowledging how much I love my husband or wife, knowing how good I've got it, loving my job, spending time with my parents, getting engaged, going into remission, having a baby, being happy, falling in love. He writes, as you can see from this list, joy and the fear of loss go hand in hand. In the face of this anxiety, Brown goes on to describe how many people in the face of this exposure and vulnerability practice what she calls foreboding joy. 
According to Brown, foreboding joy is a way of coping with our fear of loss by emotionally withdrawing from joy so that we might protect ourselves from disappointment. Brown describes a continuum of strategies here from, quote, rehearsing tragedy to perpetual disappointment, from ruminating about worst-case scenarios to keeping our expectations very, very low. According to Brown, all these strategies share a central idea, and I quote, we're trying to beat vulnerability to the punch. We don't want to be blindsided by hurt. We don't want to be caught off guard, so we literally practice being devastated or never move from self-elected disappointment, end of quote. Having read that, that haunted me. Because I really think that's what's in play in this series. I think there's a potential for living more fully into God's kingdom and the life that Jesus offers, but there's also risk and great vulnerability that's required. And it will be easy to default to foreboding joy. And so what's the response? What might be our response to this as we step into this? When Mark chapter 1, Jesus says... He offers the kingdom, but he says the only way to benefit from it is to repent and to believe. And to repent is to turn, to turn from a natural way of living, control, autonomy, eliminating risk and disappointment. I think this is where most people spend most of their lives, including Christians. He says, turn from this natural way of human living. And he says, and believe. Trust. Jesus is asking, will you trust me? I'd like to give you a moment just to sit in that question and then I'll, I'll pray, all right? Jesus, I come back to the, to the words that you gave to us and what you said, you're the good shepherd. Because you're good, I believe that you can be trusted. I do want to pray for my brothers and sisters who perhaps have experienced deep disappointment, darkness, isolation, despair, perhaps even a dark night of the soul where they felt like you've been absent, you've abandoned them. I ask that through your spirit you would right now wrap your arms around them. May they, in a very tangible, bodily way, feel your love. Feel your assurance. Know that they can trust you. And out of that trust, risk vulnerability to step into the kingdom, the reality that you've described to us. So I ask, Father, for us as a, as a church family, you'd protect us as we go into this, this topic and into this reality because I know the enemy would want to totally shut this down. And so I ask that you would do something very mighty through this time together. Show us your reality in a fresh way and pour out your life upon us in a fresh way. And may you, Jesus, be the most compelling person that we can think about 
that we can be with, that we can pursue in life. And may you receive the glory, and if it's in your name, I pray. Amen.